You're listening to Unlocking Our Sound Heritage and a century of voices from the Isle of Man. Brought to you by Manx National Heritage, the charity responsible for the Isle of Man's natural and cultural heritage. The sound recordings you'll hear today and throughout this series on Manx Radio are part of a unique collection of around 600 sound recordings digitised from the Manx National Heritage Sound Archive and available online thanks to Unlocking Our Sound Heritage, a UK-wide project to preserve and provide access to thousands of rare and unique sound recordings. Funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund and led by the British Library, Manx National Heritage is grateful to its audio preservation partner at National Museums Northern Ireland and our listening volunteers for enabling this remarkable sound archive to be enjoyed for free for the first time online. The Unlocking Our Sound Heritage team at Manx National Heritage hope you enjoy eavesdropping on the voice clips we've chosen from the nation's sound archive, all of which can be listened to in full at imuseum.im. Twenty twenty two marks the hundredth anniversary of the opening of the Manx Museum. So how's about we travel back one hundred years to this recitation in nineteen twenty two on vinyl of the hymn Oh for the Wings of Faith and Love by HP Kelly in Manx Gaelic. Oh ye cursed in thou the gallas in an air, the cormanas come out in yow. Merish in Garad there. Keep Badon show, Nish Friesen Brish, Royal Tajach Sarad Care, as Black the Cry, Mertejin Nish, Nai Pegas as Danger. Feni Kiss Hurad Gis Bevin, as Manrith Nach Bel Try, as Tad Ganzur Truth Follin in, the Court Dun Quish the Gry. Yorish the Kinjach Gaet the Christ, but Nyatal owns the grass, as nations glory to the high seat, which Yati and G for best. Amen. Now let's travel down north and listen to Janet Gibb, aged 95, the last inhabitant of the Grove Ramsey, recalling summer picnics of 1910. Well in your teens, you know, 15, yes. 16, and so on. Um, were there a lot of parties going on in the north here? Oh, yes, there were. There were, um, but they were quite different to the parties of today. We did, in the summer, of course, we did most of the sort of getting together ourselves. Um, in the summer of uh, 1910, I think it was. It was a wonderful summer, much too hot to play tennis, and we picnicked on 28 out of the 31 days in August. Up in those days, the river hadn't been cleared, and when there was a good tide, we could get up as far as Loch Nye. And we picnics up the river. I think we picnicked in every available place. And we had 
a pony and a governor's cart at that time. And I always drove in the cart with the provisions and so on. And Alice generally cycled with the crowd. We went to Barraglass and to uh, Glenmore and all the various bays and things round Mockled Head and the Point of Air and Blue Point. And, uh, and what's that other one near Belaf? Belaf, sure. Yeah. And how many of you? Twenty or twelve? Yes. Well, I know the one day up the river we were twenty-eight. Boys but, and girls, yes. or young men and women? Yes. Well, boys and girls to begin with, mm. and they grew up. You see, our three cousins, Scott and the twins, were three, and there were four boys at Ballacurry, that was seven, and there were three holiday cousins named Broadbelt who uh, came here every summer for their holidays and stayed with the old Miss Shepherds because the Miss Shepherds and their parents had been friends somewhere in Cheshire before the Shepherds came to live here. So that was ten boys, and we'd look for ten girls to go with us, you see. Mm. And we got them, generally. From the north to the south, and fresh milk to anyone who wants it at Craigneesh. Stanley Caron was born in Craigneesh in 1910, and remembers the hospitality of the village, as recalled by his mother. And my mother has told me on more than one occasion <coughs> that in her young days, nobody bought milk. Craigneesh. Anybody who didn't have a cow or a goat, you went to somebody where there was and help yourself. Big bowl of milk there, help yourself. And that's the way they lived it in her young days. You're listening to Unlocking Our Sound Heritage, a century of voices from the Isle of Man. We're about halfway, so time for a yarn from 1950, told to us by 76-year-old Andy Jockin. Now, Andy remembers a very special trip he made as a boy to Peel, to meet another Jockin, one who'd fought in 1805 at the Battle of Trafalgar. But before you do the maths on what might seem a tall tale, let Andy convince you of who he met that day in Peel. Well, then, don't ask me about old Charlie... Jochen from Peel. He fought in the Battle of Trafalgar, October 1805. Well, I was a young fella. I was fetched to Peel by my father and mother, along with, me, with my sister. We went to see old Charlie. Here he was, boy, lying in bed and only one eye. He was a powder monkey on board of the victory and he got his eye shot out the air. Now I was shaking hands with that man and I am at the present time 76. Mining in the Isle of Man was a family affair, sometimes a sad one at that. In 1897, Mrs Carouche was a teenager in Laxey and 80 years later can in her mind's eye see the funeral of the Snaefell mine disaster 
as she tells her daughter in this recording from 1970. I can remember, I can remember, I knew that funeral from Snaefell, coming in on the Snaefell Road and I was standing over at the Cape on the, at the railway and I could see them coming in the distance, I can see them to this day. But then there was another uh, disaster, but it was in the thing mines, the Laxey the mines, and it was only about six or seven that was killed there. They went in after the after the Laxey mines had been. Um, wait a minute, now let's just get together. I get stuck sometimes. Uh, um, when the um, when the Laxey mines had a disaster, it was when they went to clean the new the Laxey wheel out, mm. and. You see, it had been shut up for quite a bit, and there'd be a thing like a well I can't explain, as you know. But the four men that went in to start cleaning it, Captain Killip was on that. Do you remember Captain I know Killip? of it, yes. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, the four of them were drowned. Who were they? There was one called Gorm, wasn't there? Yes, he was one of the lads. He belonged to the North, he belonged to Ramsey. Yes, and um, what was I going to say then? Oh, I know my eldest brother uh, was helping to try and get them out of this, uh, I don't know what they called it, a sump, mm. to get them out of this sump. And he was only a young boy then. He wasn't, I mean, uh, to forced uh, schooling or anything like that. That would be Willie, would it? Gladys that would be father. Willie, yes, that would be Willie. Mm -hmm. But but you see, they were working in between one another a lot. My brother Willie worked years for Walt Brothers. Do you remember Watterson's mm -hmm. boys? Mm -hmm. Well, he worked for years for them. Well, they worked for the mines, didn't they? <coughs> oh, yeah, oh, yeah the Sneefeld and thing. They, they, they were sort of working together, you see. Mm -hmm. And um, was your father a miner in Lancashire? Yes, he was, but I was only a baby then. I was only, I, I, I would say I was only about five hours in them. But he went to South Africa, you see. He left them mines, you see, there wasn't a living in them for them. And they were all going foreign. A different type of foreign now. At the insistence of Ireland's de Valera, the Irish Folklore Commission visited these shores in 1948 to record the last native Manx speakers. Kevin Danaher, in this amusing interview with Manx Radio in 1984, describes how back then he arrived in his recording van at the Manx Museum, having shared the sailing from Dublin with a herd of cattle. Oh, in those days it was an adventure. I drove down in the about 11 o'clock in the evening and had the recording van slung from a crane and dropped into the hold of a cattle boat which was coming over to Douglas. And then the cattle came in and they occupied the upper deck and, what shall I say, the effluent descended upon the lower deck. <laughs> so that in the morning it was rather difficult to see where the van was, especially as the van was a sort of a, a dark green colour and was more or less camouflaged completely. So I succeeded in getting into the van without uh, 
too much disturbance and then drove it from the, the from the harbour here in Douglas where incidentally we were received by the Chief Preventive Officer Mr Kinvig who helped us very very much indeed was very very good to us and um, drove up to the Manx Museum to be greeted with horror by the director thereof Basil McGaw a gentle soul who was um, somewhat perturbed to see the state in which we were. And he called to me from a distance, from a safe distance. He called, he said, don't get out and close the windows. And he summoned a stout fellow with a, a, a strong hose who hosed the thing down and succeeded in washing it fairly clean. And then we were ready to go ahead. Yes. And we spent um, some weeks going up and down the island, meeting people and working with them. Uh, very happy memories of that, of the people who helped us at the time, of John Gell down in Port St Mary, and of uh, Bill Radcliffe from Ramsey, Leslie Quirk, who happily is still with us from Peel, and the various others, uh, Arthur Carn and Charles Crane, and uh, Mark Braid and Tom Braid and the rest of them who worked with us. Mm-hmm. Eric Crigine, such a fine fellow, mm-hmm. and his sister Sheila, who helped us. The island is soon set to welcome back the TT. Here's a short clip to get you in the mood from someone whose life, from being born at Falconcliffe Guesthouse, Douglas, in 1923, was forever bound to the races. Okay, the date is the 11th of October 2007, and this is Matthew Richardson from the Manx Museum talking to Eva Kane about her memories uh, of the Falconcliffe Hotel and of the TT riders that used to stay there. Can you tell me, first of all, when and where you were born, please? I was born in Falkencliffe Hotel mm. on the 2nd of June, 1923, mm. in the middle of TT Week, which caused quite an uproar. Half past five in the afternoon, just in time for dinner, all of the TT riders and the mechanics and the sponsors and everybody coming in for their meal, and Kaney, my mother is upstairs giving birth to the nuisance. So, of course, uh, TT was so much a part of my life mm. because we had that the TT and the Manx Grand Prix, the whole hotel and that was taken over. My mother built more garages. They were even in stock rooms in the hotel, mm. um, the likes of the Webbs, Forks, so just, just to go back a little bit, how, how had your parents acquired the hotel? Had it been in the family before? Yes, my, my mother came over here. Uh, they were married over here in 1911. And uh, my father was in the theatre. And he used to tour and mother toured with him um, until uh, 1914 when my father went into the services and my mother went to um, Barmouth, to Fairbourne, near Barmouth in Wales, to manage the Innisfeg Hall estate for Sir Peter Peacock, the founder of Peacock Stores, who are now over here after all these years. And uh, my father was missing at the end of the war, and my mother came over to the island with Sir Peter Peacock who loaned her the money to buy Falkencliffe in 1919. And my father came home uh, not very long afterwards 
and they ran the hotel from 1919 onwards. Mm. And then, of course, I was born in there in 1923. Yes. These the teams that came over, they 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 rented as part of the package. They sort of rented the rooms and the garages and. They oh, yes. did all their they came sort of, as a team. Yeah, and they did all their mechanic work in, in the yes. garages at the back yes. of the hotel. As you can see for the um, BMWs, they even brought their own doctor, their own mechanics. Um, the, some of the officers that uh, were in charge of them, the likes of uh, the man who won in 1939, George Meyer, hmm. he was actually one of Hitler's bodyguard. Hmm. No century of voices from the Isle of Man would be complete without word of fairies, farming, long tales and the fishing. So let's end on those. Coming up, you'll hear Mrs Kegg tell the story of a binder in Andreas tinkered with by the little people, chaps talking about what to call a long tail in Balasala, and finally, Mr Corkle of Douglas recalling his time as a boy before the First World War, shooting the nets aboard the sailing boats fishing out of Port St Mary. Sorry about the binder, Mrs Kegg. Well, there was a farmer in Andrus and they were getting one of the binders. They were new out then and um, quite a novelty. And the binder came home and so to make sure that nothing would happen to it. On the night, they put the bread and cheese and all out for the fairies. And uh, in the morning, it was all gone. The fairies had eaten all up. So they went to go to cut the corn and, of course, all the neighbours from round about and far and near were coming for to see this new binder at work. And uh, something went wrong with the binder. So the fairies had ate the, the provisions and butched the binder as well. So that was off. How long ago was that? Oh, 40, 50 years ago. When was the first binder, would you say? Uh, first binder, about 1980 and put in, in a stack. They thought it was a wonderful thing. They thought it was a wonderful thing at that time. Oh, no, 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 the, the rats, there's a rat. Uh, what else can you? Long tail. Oh, well, anything could be a long tail. <laughs> <laughs> it's only, not only a rat that's got a long tail, you know. Superstitious. <laughs> what? You're not, are you? Are you superstitious? No, but everybody else seems to be. Oh, well, that's all right then. <laughs> you, have you ever never called them long tails, son? No. Oh. Call them by their proper name. Aye. That's all we ever called them, wasn't it? Yeah. Rats. Aye. Yes, yes, yes. But they were a big problem on the farms, weren't they? They were, once. But, uh, the, the fourpence a tail, or the twopence a tail it was, wasn't it? Yes. And fourpence for the she one. <laughs> so is that, you were going out getting them yourself, were you? Oh, aye. And, uh, when the middle, when the thrashing time, that's the time you'd pick them up. So you just pick them off the ground almost? Well, no, all the dogs were there to kill well, them. Oh, the dogs got them? Oh, the dogs, wasn't it, George? Uh, yeah, dogs. There were plenty of dogs about at that time. Uh, and the men were fiercer than the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Money was that bloody scarce. <laughs> <laughs> so what were the farmer being paid then? I mean, let's, we're talking about the 30s, are we now? Oh, no. Later than that, isn't it? Yes. The 40s. In the 40s, yes. In no, the 40s. Three pound a week? No, all time. <laughs> no, all time. Uh, yeah. Three pound a week? 
No, it wasn't Nan's that, I don't think at all. That oh. was me. Oh. What's that? Three pound a week. We just know. No, for the tails. Oh, oh no, no, how much would you make on the tails in a week, then? Depending how many you add. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's your best, then, Howard? Oh, I can't remember now. No. We used to take them to the smithy in Balasella. Uh -huh. The blacksmith that took A couple them. of pigs, one sow, and then feeding two or three young ones. It was one Sunday, it was uh, June anyway, and she got out of the sty, she was down at Keggins, and she got out, lifted the door off her hinges, and she was coming up by the side of the ch church, and I was coming down from, I'd been up on the hill and coming down off the mountain. I saw her coming, so I ran down to try and stop her, to knock her back to get her down, and she wouldn't go. She turned down to let her box, and me running by the side of her, hitting her, trying to hit her back, and they were all in church. And I never thought on the door open, you see. And when you come down off the road, the wall goes so far, and then the church door's in after on the cement thing. Yes. She darted in there, I didn't stop. Off in the house, locked the door <laughs> of the bedroom, watching them out. But there's an old fellow in there, Harry Watson. He got out. She emptied the church, but he got out and put her back in the yard and shut the gate. Then they come thumping at the door. Naturally, I didn't open it. <laughs> so the pig put the fright up the congregation then? <laughs> oh, well, she emptied them all. <laughs> She must have slowed up, you see, because she had a green turn, turn. Yeah. So speed was over. So I suppose you kept that story to yourself for a long time, did you? Pardon? You kept that story to yourself for a long time. Uh, for a long time, yes. Yeah, yeah. Although, no, it was all over the village at the time. <laughs> then the skipper would say, what do you say, boys, we take sail? Oh, let her run a bit, one of them would say. Let her run a bit longer yet, skipper. We're not on three crank yet, and let her run. And then we'd run... Well, all right, take sail. I'd just put the sail down. And we'd then we'd uh, get the sail off her, and we'd start then to get everything all right, lower the sail, and get everything out of the nets prepared then, and we'd put the nets. Now, every man was to a position. The cook had to go down to look after the spring back that was underneath. You see, that was the rope coming up where the net was fastened onto to keep the net in, in position on the bottom. And then there was two men putting the, uh, shooting the cockbacks, and then one man would be shooting on the backs, the cock backs to the top of the net where the cocks are. And the other man would be shooting on the backs. There'd be another man to the buoys. And there'd be another to the buoys. That is the, uh, the floats. Thanks for listening to A Century of Voices from the Isle of Man. And join us next week on Unlocking Our Sound Heritage for Voices from the Fishing. And down comes the looking glass on the on the boiler fire front and it's smashing thousands of pieces. <laughs> oh my god. And we'd be cruising along the coast, fog is thick, you couldn't see hardly the the stern from the bow. And all of a sudden he said to me, Give it a bang. Well I had another mound spike in my hand and he said, Give this mound spike that was hanging a real good whack. Do you remember there being any steam trawlers? Oh no, peel. Field of harbour being packed full of steam trawlers. We never liked to be the third boat leaving either. 
there be known what a tie to hold them together, I believe, but I've never seen that done. Until then, visit www.imuseum.im and click on Unlocking Our Sound Heritage to listen to these and many, many more sound recordings from the Manx National Heritage Sound Archive. To find out more about the charity Manx National Heritage and how you can support us, visit our website www.manxnationalheritage.im or join us on Facebook. Facebook.